well, Ruth, where we are on these 11.30 Sunday mornings, is a gentle book, but with a steely core and a controversial edge. 56 of its 85 verses are, well, conversation. And we've seen that this morning. Here's a 3,000-year-old love story, the flesh and blood experience of one family living the unexpected plan of God in the worst of times. The story sees a foreigner, a Moabite called Ruth, admitted to Israel, and ultimately, final chapter, the genealogy not only of King David, but also Jesus. Ruth is a very ordinary person in crisis, and she finds herself spliced into the thread of salvation history. Here's a story that begins with loss and ends with gain, that begins with death, that ends in a birth. A son is born. A bad situation is reversed. It's a story of redemption, even if it takes generations to see the full glory of what God is doing. It's a story of the overarching grace of God and his unceasing and immeasurable kindness. That, I think, is the theme of Ruth, the kindness of God. It's a story of unexpected conversion and radical consecration. It's a story of loyalty and love from famine to fullness, of providential preservation of a family, the family, that produced King David and ultimately Jesus himself. God is everywhere behind the scenes in this little book. Hidden but moving. Not abandoning, but acting and protecting and saving. There's not much said about him but plenty happening in events. Here's a book to remind us that when it looks as if nothing is going right, God is at work preparing for the most important event in the universe, the birth of Jesus. The hiddenness of God must never be mistaken for his absence. That reminder comes across so strongly in the only two books of the Bible named after women, Ruth and Esther. We discover he's there, always moving in natural events, the famine, in chance encounters, the field, in daring human schemes, chapter 3, where we'll be next week, even in legal processes like gleaning rights and rules of guardian redeemership, giving significance to the tiny mosaic pieces of the very ordinariness of our lives. For the Christian, you know, there's always a connection between the ordinary events of life and the stupendous work of God in history. That's why this book is ultimately, I think, a book of hope. This little book helps us with the profound question that never goes away in any age. Here's the question. Can I trust and love the God who has dealt me a painful hand in life? Well, this little book helps us with that profound question which never goes away. 
Now we saw last week in Luke uh, Ijaz's excellent introduction to chapter 1 that the book is set, chapter 1 verse 1, uh, when the judges ruled. These were the worst of times. I read this week a good modern journalistic word for such times. Polycrisis. It was a new word to me. Pretty much everything going wrong. Well, we know the feeling, don't we? The message of Ruth is that God is still there in the worst of times. Even these are never wasted. Globally, historically, personally. In the worst of times, God is still plotting for our glory as his people. He's never surprised. He's never caught off guard. He's never frustrated by unexpected developments. God does as he pleases, and that which pleases him is always for his glory and our good. Wow. The takeaway from last week's talk, you remember, was the Lord will provide the bread of life at Bethlehem. It happened in history. And the chapter that began with famine in Bethlehem, and you know the meaning of that time, the house of bread, ended, verse 22, chapter 1, with Naomi and Ruth's return to Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. There's a hint of hope. There's a glimpse of light at the end of chapter 1. And if you know the story, you know what's going to happen in the barley fields. Everything is going to change because God is in it. In chapter 1, Naomi faced famine, a move to Moab, the death of her husband, the marriage of her two sons to Moabite wives, the apparent absence of grandchildren, and then the death of the boys. It was a killing onslaught. And no wonder she feels, chapter 1, verse 13, the Lord's hand has turned against me. Verse 20, the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Verse 21, the Lord has afflicted me. The physical famine was matched by a sort of, well, a sort of spiritual famine. I suspect we know the feeling. And Naomi's a realist. She doesn't hide her deepest feelings from God. She calls it as it is. And, and we shouldn't hide our feelings either. She has enough faith and theology to know that God exists, that he is sovereign, and that bafflingly, as it seems, his hand and no one else's has cast this deep shadow over her life. Here's a story for any of us who can't imagine that God may be doing anything great from the apparent mess of our lives. Well, in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, glance down at that, Naomi had, no doubt with tears, prayed for her two daughters-in-law that the Lord may show them kindness as they had shown her and their husband's kindness. And the rest of the book, in a sense, is a working out of that prayer. And we see there, in verse 8, one of the great words, one of the great God words of the Old Testament. It makes something like 250 appearances, apparently. Hesed. And it's there translated kindness. The authorized version often has loving kindness. The ESV has steadfast love. There are a number of different uh, phrases used. And the word again is in our chapter, chapter 2, verse 20. This time, Naomi's voice. He, God, has not stopped showing his kindness 
to the living and the dead. There's a lot of kindness in this little book. Ruth is kind. Boaz is kind. At every stage, going way beyond the letter of the law. And above all, we learn God is kind. He's the ultimate source of kindness, even in the very worst of times. This little book is intentionally rich in its revelation of the sort of God Yahweh is. Well, what is Hesed? As Alec Mateer put it, uh, Hesed is a word which combines the warmth of God's fellowship with the security of God's faithfulness. And in chapter 2, the kindness of God is to become visible in a way which even feeling bitter Naomi can't miss. Well, I've only really got two very broad and simple headings. First, the faith of Boaz and Ruth. And then second, the providence of God. Those are, that's where we're going in the next few minutes. If the first chapter dealt with three women, here in chapter, one, chapter 2, verse 1, we meet Boaz, a male relative of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech. And that's got important implications straight away for the rules and duties around kinship support and even marriage. We're in potential kinsman-redeemer territory with Boaz. It's as if the narrator, who of course knows exactly where the story is going, says to us, look, keep your eye on this man, for he may be set to be the answer to Naomi's prayer in a way you don't expect. Look at some of what we're told about him. Verse 1, he's a man of standing, worth. And there are echoes in that phrase of wealth and integrity and courage and maturity. We know, of course, from what we read on that he has land, fields, he has a workforce, he has an overseer or foreman, and he's immensely generous. But we also learn that he is, in verse 4, what John Piper calls a God-saturated man. Look at that telling little detail that the uh, writer inserts of the way he routinely greets his workers. Do you see that? Verse 4, the Lord be with you. And how they answer, the Lord bless you. This is a man of living faith. These aren't just cheap platitudes. Even in the polycrisis days of the judges, there were still faithful people living for God on the front line of business and commerce, shaped by what they believed, living lives shot through with kindness and godliness, wanting to live for Yahweh every day. Life not compartmentalized between faith and work. Boaz is that sort of man. He's a man of faith. And we meet Ruth again in verse 2. And we go on to see something of her faith too. It shines through the chapter. Look at a few things about her. We see, first of all, her initiative. Driven by desperation. Verse 2. Let me go to the fields and pick over the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. There's no sitting around depressed here. 
She's just getting on with the business of living. What else do you do in dark days than get on with the business of living? We see second her humility. Verse 7. The foreman reports that she had actually asked to glean not demanded her rights or expected a handout of any kind. All she wants is to gather leftovers. A little bit like that other foreign woman, do you remember, who came to Jesus in Matthew 15, talking about even the dogs eating the crumbs from the master's table and Jesus commending her faith. Gleaning, you know, was a direct expression of God's love and concern for the poor, the stranger, the widow, the destitute, the marginalized. It's an immensely important theme. We're dealing with it in the forthcoming John Stott London lecture in a couple of weeks' time. I hope you'll maybe come. These arrangements say something powerful about the love of God. And yes, Ruth, the Moabite, and we're told that seven times in the book, just in case we we miss it, is qualified to glean. She ticks the boxes. The legal provisions are there in Deuteronomy 24 and Leviticus 19, and you can look them up uh, uh, later. Ruth probably knew something of them. Boaz certainly did. But look, let's not over-romanticize this gleaning. You know, we're not talking Suffolk countryside here. No, this is the equivalent of youngsters gathering plastic bottles for recycling from landfill. This is immigrant beggars collecting aluminium cans at the city dump to sell for pence. Here is Ruth asking to take home some grain from the field edges so that she and her mother-in-law don't starve. And we see third, her industry, verse 7. The overseer reports that she's been at it from morning until now, except for a short rest. Verse 17 says she gleaned until evening and then processed what she could before carrying the flower home. Here then is Ruth taking absolutely nothing for granted. There's nothing pushy or presumptive. There's no air of entitlement. There is initiative humility and industry, yes, but she still needs someone with the right character, quality, and resources to step up for her. For, look, you know, however industrious she is, she can't do this on her own. And that's how faith works. Faith acts. Faith believes. But faith knows it needs grace. It needs someone to step up to hold you. Now, we don't know the full story of that decade in Moab, whatever happened on her spiritual journey. Her conversion in that decade was the genuine article. She'd fallen in love with the God of grace. And here we see in her care for Naomi what Paul in Galatians 5, 6 would later call the only thing that counts for anything. And that is faith working through love. Here it is before our very eyes in the life of Ruth. That's what's going on here. Faith working through love. 
I suspect Ruth would have been happy to sing as we do sometimes. Henry lights him, prays him for his grace and favor to our fathers in distress. Praise him still the same forever, slow to chide and swift to bless. Well, the writer underlines this three times. Did you spot that? Ruth recognizes her need for favor, for mercy, what we simply would would call grace. Do you see it in verse 2? She seeks favor. Verse 2, let me go and find favor. Verse 10, she finds favor. Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And in verse 13, she anticipates favor longing that Boaz will continue to show her favor. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. Well, behind all that picture of faith, there's the other theme in the chapter. The unseen but wonderfully real providence of a faithful God. Look look back at verse 3. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Literally, it means, apparently, her encounter encountered, or her chance chanced upon. We might say in English, by a stroke of luck. She was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. The authorized version says she happed, happed on that field. This was happenstance of all the fields in all the regions. She entered the field of a relative, one of the very few people in the whole of Israel, who might be able to give her and Naomi the help they needed. Well, I think this is meant to be a key verse in the flow of the story. The author, I think, means us to get this, to sit up with all our yeah, right kind of response. And he asks us to consider the significance of what is transpiring here. Is this really God's doing? A coincidence? A God incidence? Well, the book's answer is resoundingly the latter. Because, you know, believers don't depend on luck or chance or fortune. We trust a God who has planned all things for our good and for his glory. As theologian Phyllis Tribble puts it, within human luck is divine intentionality. What was to Ruth a sheer coincidence in an unplanned set of circumstances, was actually, as it becomes apparent later in the chapter, an indication of God's gracious care. (laughs) We sometimes sing, he's got the whole world in his hands. Do do you believe that? And then do, do you live, do we live as though we believe it? Providence says God is there. He cares. He rules. 
he provides. And, you know, his providence extends from Downing Street to the Kremlin, from Lambeth Palace to your kitchen. And the paradox of Scripture is that we have God's sovereign overruling of everything, even our stupidities, our mistakes, our disobediences, our rebellions, all of this being ushered into the unfolding plan which, uh, through which he is conforming everything to the purpose of his will, as Ephesians 1.11 puts it. But look, there's no free pass for, for Christians in all this. Psalm 34 verse 19, the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them, the Lord delivers them from them all. I, I need to hear that myself. I need to hear that for my own future and for the future of the Church of England that we're going to discuss on Thursday. We, we need to ask ourselves whether we believe that God is providentially in control, working all things out for his purpose. I came across this this week. Listen to Charles Simeon of Cambridge praying for his congregation in 1759. What is before us we know not, whether we shall live or die, but this we know, that all things are ordered and sure. Everything is ordered with unerring wisdom and unbounded love by thee, our God who art love. Grant us in all things to see thy hand through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, do you pray like that? Can, can we pray like that? Well, after ending up in the field, Boaz, uh, verse 4, arrives and the relationship begins. And it's sketched so movingly for us. Read it again and savor the detail. Look at the relationship. It's informed, verses 5 and 11. He, he knows who he's dealing with. It's tender, verse 8. My, my daughter, listen to me. It's protective, verse 9, with what one commentator observes is the first anti-sexual harassment in the workplace policy recorded in the Bible. Good on him. He's ahead of the game. It's generous, verse 9. Drink from the water jars that these servants have filled. It's affirming. Verses 13, 11 to 13. Verse 14, there's an inclusive, more than sufficient meal, a wonderful meal laid on for everyone together, staff and leadership, hosted by Boaz. And there are then, verses 16 and 17, facilitated extra gleaning options, which send Ruth home with about as much flour as she can physically carry. If this isn't hesed in the flesh, it's hard to know what might be. There's wonderful protection and provision. Ruth discovers the heart of God in the hands of Boaz. Remind you of anyone? Well, little wonder Naomi's mood lifts a little in verse 20 with the incredulity and delight of receiving so much food. 
not to mention the news that they may actually have hit on a long-term solution. Bitterness becomes thankfulness. This man, Boaz, is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Law coming to the rescue yet again. See Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25 for details. More of that next week. Perhaps the most important exchange in the chapter comes there in verses 10 to 13, where Ruth raises a question which turns out to be very profound. She is simply astonished at Boaz's kindness, this glimpse of hesed. It's a question we all need to ask God. Hardly anything in your life is more important than the answer you get to this question put to God. Verse 10, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Well, the answer, you know, is not ultimately that she's stepped up for Naomi, for of course she has, or that she's made a costly and sacrificial call in relation to her own family and homeland. She has. Those are important and worthy matters, but what matters above all is that she has, end of verse 12, come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord, the God of Israel. This is a true daughter of Abraham, for she has done exactly what he did years before, trusted everything to God, counted on his protection as better than anything else. Well, the psalmist knew this too, Psalm 57 verse 1, have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me, for I take refuge, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. We live near Abney Park Cemetery in Stoke Newington, and Isaac Watts used to live on the site and was for a time buried there, and there's a little area preserved where he used to go and pray and write. I go there occasionally just to sort of hang out in the hope that something may rub off on me. (laughs) I don't know if he wrote his 1719 hymn there, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. We don't sing it so often these days, but it's a lovely hymn. I love the second verse. It resonates with our verse 12. And we could substitute wings under the shadow of thy throne. Thy saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. You know, there's no safer place in all the universe than under the wings of the sovereign, all-wise, all-loving God. There's no greater privilege than living under the shadow of God's wings in the companionship of all those who have taken refuge in him. We've got to stick together as brothers and sisters in the church, living under the wings of Almighty God. Come what may. When you're there, 
under the wings. You're not going on about your achievements and your impressive qualities and your deep insight. No, you're no hero. You're a little chick or a humble little eaglet that's safe and dependent and, you know, needs its mother. And yes, the shadow of those wings may occasionally leave us feeling in a dangerous place, but nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from their glorious protection. And our pain, which is real as Ruth's was, of course, has all-powerful purpose behind it, preparing us, as 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. John Piper has said somewhere, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. (laughs) There's a simple logic to this book as I end, and indeed to the teaching of the whole Bible. If you shelter under the wings of the Almighty, then you can be certain he will work out everything for your glory, your, your good, your good and his glory. And it's his declared purpose, now sealed at the expense of his son's death, to bless you and to enable you to find favor. Well, this is the logic of the gospel. It's here, foreshadowed in Ruth. It's the logic of the gospel that we now celebrate as we come to the Lord's Supper. Another extraordinary, undeserved, inclusive meal for us, Boaz style. For us who are former asylum seekers and outsiders and people who are frankly shocked that we've been invited at all. The logic says... If God did not spare his own son, with his son, he will freely give us all things. Ruth surely points us in the right direction for this moment in verse 10. We fall on our faces before Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. We honor the one who has shown us hesed, kindness, and who's laying down his life for us, and we ask him in humble amazement at his non-stop kindness. Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me 